In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most merciful Jesus, at this hour you hung upon the cross for our salvation. And as you thirst for our soul, today we too thirst for your great love. That we ask that you fill us with your love and kindness that we may offer to you all of our lives. As we recline upon your breast during this holy hour, may we become like the beloved disciple John. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, We've already talked about what it means to kind of be a disciple, to follow Jesus in silence. And then also, what does it mean to have and ask for mercy and receive his glory? And then at Mass, we looked at the progression of the liturgy into the Word of God and what the Word of God means, how it applies to our life through the creed and the prayers of the faithful. Well, now we'd like to enter into what we're going to call in this talk the disciple at the Last Supper, moving into the offertory, the preface, and the sanctus, the holy, holy, holy. And... To me, as a priest, the, the, obviously the high point of the Mass is the institution. It's the words of consecration. But the part in the prayers leading up to that are so beautiful, so filled with meaning and ritual, that it's almost kind of like baptism. There's a lot of symbolisms that's going on. And as an acolyte or a lector up at the sanctuary, you probably pick up on some of the things that are going on. So let me just kind of reflect with you this afternoon a little bit about what is going on during this part of the offertory. Uh, A few years ago, uh, when I was at St. Michael as an assistant, my first assignment, I was at St. Michael in Lincoln for three years. And because it was a new parish, one of the things that I did quite frequently was go out and bless new homes. And of course, blessing of homes always usually means that there's a nice meal. And when I went to this young family's home, they had three little boys, and their second boy, Ryder, was probably about five, maybe six years old. And uh, the mom said something to the, the three boys that you have something to give to father, don't you? And the oldest boy had drawn something like a picture of Jesus, and I was kind of Jesus, and he was there. It was just a beautiful little picture. And Ryder, he you know, kind of shook his head. He's like, I'm sorry, Father, I, I can't I can't draw. I'm not that good, but hold on. He goes back to his room, brings out his piggy bank, and he shakes this piggy bank until all the change comes out, and there's one dollar bill. He takes that dollar bill, which I still have, and he gives it to me. And he says, Father, I want you to give this to Jesus. That is what the offering is before Mass. We are giving to Jesus. We're bringing up bread and wine. We're taking up a collection. It's a part in which the church, the people in the pews, participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. To give to Jesus. One time when I was working with the CFRs in New York City, I went to a mass in, I think it was Ghanan, and these 
refugees who had come over from Ghana. They had such vibrant music throughout the liturgy. But when it came to the offertory, the song was extremely long. And the reason why it was long is because they did some kind of thing like a dollar dance for the offertory. People just ushered out with their dollars and they came up dancing down the aisle. I'm like, well, this is kind of fun. This is how you get people to give, right? You just got to make it enjoyable. And they did that once. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. Then they did it twice. They did it three times. They did it four times. It's like the priest is probably looking at the collection basket. He's like, not enough. Do it again. Keep the music playing, right? (laughs) This Historically, the offerings, the bread and the wine, were given by the people and the money to support the priest. In the Old Testament, the Levite priest did not have any land. He was totally dependent upon the generosity of the people. And it's the same with the church. The church is totally dependent upon our generosity. And see, bread and wine are brought forward because they're the two most common things on earth. They take much time and energy to prepare. You think about sowing that seed of wheat in the field and then growing it, then harvesting it, then processing the wheat, then packaging it, and then making it into a host, and then shipping it. The fruit of the earth and work of human hands. This is what we say. The bread and the wine are the same two things used at Passover. Bread is the most common food source of all the earth, and wine is the most festive and so it shows the, the, that the mass is both for the poor, who can bring bread, and the rich, who can bring wine. That both are participating in the sacrifice together. Placing the bread and the wine in the hands of the priest by the faithful is a symbol of all present to place their very lives into the hands of Jesus. To bring him the gifts of their life as he gives him his life. It's basically saying here, I bring up the bread and the wine, do something to this. You're telling the priest, change it. We place our lives in the paten, or in the ciborium, in the chalice, that at every mass too, there should be something, something as remarkable as the changing of bread and wine, but our lives from sinners to saints, should be changed. And oftentimes, though, we think, well, that's going to that's gonna cost a lot, right? We're talking about discipleship. What is the cost of discipleship? Everything. I mean, it costs John everything. But what are we going to gain even more? And so the bread and the wine are brought forward, and the first time that bread and wine are offered as an offertory was back in the book of Genesis, this guy by the name of Melchizedek. You probably heard this in the first Eucharistic prayer. The word melech in Hebrew means king, and zedek means righteous. So here we have a righteous king who is considered the king of Salem, which incidentally will become Jerusalem. And he offers up bread and wine and gives it to Abraham and blesses him. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus, who is the new Melchizedek, both king and priest, 
who offers up bread and wine in Jerusalem on our behalf. And when the Jews would offer up bread at the Last Supper, or I should say the Passover, the prayer was called the Bekorah, which means there's three different purposes of why they would offer up bread. First, they praise God for creation. Secondly, they give him thanks for the past work of salvation. And finally, they offer him bread up for prayers for the future. And this is why Jesus in the Gospel of John can say, you know, your ancestors ate manna in the desert, but they died. I am the bread of life, come down from heaven. Whoever eats of me will live. And if you eat of my body and drink of my blood, on the last day, I will raise you up. See, Jesus is drawing the same connection between the past events, giving thanks to God for salvation, giving him present praise of creation, and the future, that I will raise you up. And so, after the bread and the wine are offered up and as an oblation to God, we have the what's called the commingling prayer. So the priest takes the wine and the water, and he commingles them together. This is a symbol of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. You may have heard the priest say this, that may this precious wine, which mingled itself with the humanity, that we may become partakers of his divinity. And so when the priest puts a little drop of wine, or a little drop of water, the water symbolizes the humanity of Jesus. And it The prayer is basically asking, because Jesus became one with us, we are able to become one with him. As 2 Peter 1.4 said, that we partake of the very nature of God through the holy mysteries. That's what the sacraments were called. Before they were called the sacraments, they called them the mysteries. And so this this commingling prayer, it shows that we participate in God's nature. After the commingling prayer, we have the washing of the hands. And of course, this is um, for not just for hygienic purposes, right? Nowadays, you have people at different um, dioceses that have Eucharistic ministers who come up from the back, but you know, we want to make sure that they're all cleansed so we don't spread any germs. So we'll get the, the big uh, spray out, and you just will dump it on you, right? And you, I mean, it's not about the germs. Obviously, the priest does wash his hands before Mass in the back. But at the altar, the washing of the hands is a reminder. The prayer of David, wash me, O Lord, and make me clean. Cleanse my heart from my sins. And then the priest, well, I'd say before he washes his hands, he uses incense. And so sometimes the washing of the hands can wash off if there's any extra incense. But the incense which we used here today comes from the psalm, Psalm 142. When the priest blesses the incense, he says, May our prayers rise up to you like this incense. I mean, it's said to say that in the church, incense is not as frequently used. I mean, incense in the past had, like I said before, several different purposes. The first purpose was it had to cover up the smell. And so if Father or the acolytes haven't showered in a day or two, it's kind of helpful to use incense. 
The second purpose for the incense is a visual reminder to say that our prayers are rising up to God. And what's beautiful about being Catholic is that we want to engage all of our senses in the liturgy. This is why we sit. This is why we stand. This is why we hear bells. This is why we smell incense. We're seeing a lot of things going on. To engage your senses means to know. And to know leads you to love. And so the incense, the third thing that incense does is it reminds us of God's presence. Remember in the Old Testament, the glory cloud? The glory cloud comes down in the Old Testament. And it is the place in which Moses goes to meet God, known as the Shekinah. Well, this cloud of smoke that comes around through the altar should remind us that the Holy Spirit is present. Okay, so the offering. In the Old Testament, they used to bring animals or cereal grain offerings. And, of course, you had different types of offerings to God, whether it was a guilt offering, a sin offering, a thanksgiving offering. But in the New Testament, St. Paul, he writes this to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present and offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So in the New Testament, you and I, in the New Covenant, you and I are not bringing rams and cereals to have the priest to be offered, but we bring ourselves. After the offering prayers, we move into what's called the preface. You know, this, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Okay, good. You've got to love music class. The word preface means to do in front of or to proclaim in the presence of. So we're doing these prayers before Jesus comes. Okay? And so we first, we lift up our hearts. Uh, or first we say, the, the priest says, the Lord be with you. I want the Lord to be with you. Your responses and with your spirit. Coming from St. Paul's writings to the Timothy, chapter 4, verse 22. And that's really like the deepest identity as a priest, is the spiritual mark on his soul. You don't say, and also with you anymore, or, also, or with you, Father, or with you, Bishop. You say, and with your spirit. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ, that the priest acts in the person of Christ. So you're saying, and, also, and with your spirit. Okay. And then we say, lift up your hearts. Okay, this comes from Lamentations 3.41. And Jesus said, remember, where your heart is, there is your treasure. Or where your treasure is, there is your heart. You know, it's been saddened for me the last six months of seeing a lot of the problems in the church. And quite frankly... I think a lot of the problem has to do with where our heart is, right? Sometimes we can get caught up in so many of the externals 
or we can just get caught up in saying things. We lift them up to the Lord, right? But we don't actually mean it. We give God lip service, but our hearts are far from him. I'm reminded of a story, and maybe you've heard about this guy, Alexander Solonitsky, who grew up in Russia and was born in the year 1918. And eventually he was drafted and became a, a soldier in the Communist Red Army. But once the Russians beat the Germans on the Eastern Front, he saw the horrors of what the Russians were doing to the German people. And eventually he spoke out against Joseph Stalin and the Red Army. And because of that, he was sent to the gulags, the labor camps of Kazakhstan. And while he was in the labor camps of Kazakhstan for nine years, he met uh, an Orthodox Christian priest who was also there because of religious persecution by the communists. And when he met this uh, Orthodox priest, he converted and became Christian. And he became a pretty devout Christian in the work camp. And eventually he was kind of one of the famous leaders of this work camp. And a lot of the people came to him and said, hey, what's going to happen when we get out of here? How can we create a new society? How can we destroy evil? And they said, well, do you, th- you think we just it's a new government that we need? Is it a new church that we need? Or is there a new program? And his response was this, and I think it's profound. He says, and I quote, If only it was so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere committing insidious evil crimes and deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them, the evil ones, from the rest of us, and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? End quote. And that's precisely what we do when we offer God our heart at Mass. To destroy the piece of my heart that is not of God, that's evil, that's sinful, that's of this world. And really, if we want to renew the church, we have to renew our own hearts. And so we place them at the paten, and when the priest says, lift up your hearts, we can say, with full faith, we lift them up to the Lord. Then the priest says, let us give thanks to God. And your response is, it is right and just. The preface prayer then goes on, and of course, every preface is going to be different, whether it's a saint of the day or Advent or Lent or Christmas. It first addresses God, God as the Father, and some action that he's done throughout history. And then the second part of the preface prayer talks about Jesus and his action. And then the third part, it brings in all the angels and saints and our participation. And so that's the preface. We move now on to the Sanctus, the holy, holy, holy. You know, in our culture, we could say things are good, better, best, right? The Hebrews didn't have that. They would just repeat the same word three times 
if that's what was the best. So this is why they say, holy, 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 or amen, 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 I say to you, right? It's, it's the same also in Korean. I don't know if any of you speak Korean, but you know what Samsung, the Korean television company or electrical company means? Samsung means three stars. It means it's the highest grade for electronics. And so in, in the Hebrew word, the holy, 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 we find this from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 3, in which... The Lord of hosts, the angels, the seraphim are singing out, holy, holy, holy. All the earth is filled with your glory. And it's also in the book of Revelation. St. John has the vision of heaven. And he sees what he calls the four living creatures, which we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four living creatures cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So Jesus, who was in the past, who is still with us presently in the Eucharist, and who is to come at the final end of time. And then we go on and we say, uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Remember where this word Hosanna in the highest comes from? The word Hosanna in Hebrew means save us. You know, I didn't actually talk about this when we talked about the, the becoming disciples of the word. What three languages are used at Mass? We have Hebrew, we have Latin, and we have Greek. Why those three languages? Because those are the three dominant cultures when Jesus comes. St. Paul writes, in the fullness of time. That Jesus came at a specific time and place to show that everything was being prepared for him. The Greeks had philosophy and a written language that the New Testament could be wrote in. The Jews had the old covenants, the prophets that pointed to Jesus. And then the Romans had, well, they had pasta. No, the, the, the Romans had roads. They had good roads. They had the legal system that was going to be, make it easier to understand the faith. The, the Romans brought peace. All of the Roman Empire was at peace. So it made it safe to travel, which meant that it was easier to spread Christianity in the first three centuries. Okay, so the word Hosanna, what does the word Hosanna mean? It means save us. And we hear this word from Palm Sunday in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Save us. Save us from what? Well, save us from our enemies. See, at the Mass, two things are, two things are happening here. First, Jesus is offering himself as an oblation for our sins. He is the sacrificial victim, but he's also our Savior. And so both things can come together in the person of Jesus. And both of these things should come to the, together in our lives as well. In a way, we are called to participate with Jesus to offer our lives up as an offering, but to also to help save others, whether it's your family, friends. There's a story of, uh, and I'm sure maybe you've heard this story before, uh, maybe not, but he's Newly case was opened, um, Father Vincent Cappadano. Anyone heard of Father Vincent Cappadano? Okay, 
he was a Marine chaplain in uh, Vietnam. He was, I think, the 10th child. His parents immigrated from Italy. He grew up in New York. And he was, uh, he wanted to be a missionary, and he was a Mary Knoll priest. And he spent some time in the Pacific. Well, once he was in the Pacific, he decided to enlist, and he joined the Marines. I mean, he was a pretty tough guy. And the Marines kind of have this policy. If you, it's kind of an unwritten policy, if you are injured in battle... You are basically taken off the battlefield, and you are healed there at the camp. And eventually, you can go back into the battle. If you are injured three different times in battle, you get three different purple hearts, you get to go home. Okay. So, Father Capodanno, on Labor Day, his battalion ran into a lot of trouble in Vietnam. They had only 500 Marines and the North Vietnamese, the communists, had 2,500. They were outnumbered five to one. And early in the day, he went to go anoint someone and give him the last rites. And he was shot in his hand, which meant that he had the right to go back and to sit the rest of the battle out. But he told the EMT, the paramedic that was there, to patch him up. He had more work to do to, to save people. And so they patched up his hand. He went out into the battlefield, and he was giving last rites to another guy. And all of a sudden, a bomb goes off close to him. The shrapnel shreds his whole right hand, or his whole right arm. He goes back. They pull him out, and they stitch him up. And they're like, you're, you're coming back. He's like, no, no, there's still, there's still, you understand, there's still dying men out there. I must go and save them. And so he goes out into the battlefield. Of course, back in those days before Vatican II, you had to do everything with your right hand. You had to anoint and absolve. And so he could barely lift his hand. He had to take his left hand and go like this to absolve people, to heal people, anoint them. And when he was anointing someone, there was uh, an automatic machine gun going off, and it just totally obliterated a soldier, cut off his legs, Father Capadonna runs over there to him and knows that this guy is going to be shot up. There's no chance for him. In order to save his life, Father Capadonna reaches out and gives him the apostolic pardon and the anointing of the sick. And as he's given him absolution, the machine gun fires upon Father Capadonna and shreds him with over 20 different times. Father Capadano, his third purple heart of the day, he ended up going home. See, his life was an offering. And as an offering, he also saved others. And that's what our lives are supposed to be. Our lives are first supposed to be an offering and so that you and I can save others. So then we have to ask ourselves this question then. How do we make our lives as a perpetual offering? You know, the first offerings or the first gifts brought to Jesus were what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, you probably don't have any gold, frankincense, and myrrh laying around. But why did they offer him gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Gold, because he was the king. Frankincense, because he was a priest and he would need it in the temple. And myrrh, because he was a prophet. And as a prophet, all the prophets of the past 
except a few, were put to death. He would eventually have to give his life for us. Priest, prophet, and king. You and I, too, can give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not literally, but symbolically. We give gold by our tithing, that we are called as Christians, and especially as leaders in our parish, to give back to our church. We are called to give frankincense by our prayers. People in our parish need to see us praying. We need to be an example before others. And we give myrrh to Jesus by offering up up our sufferings. That we could say, I offer up this suffering for you, Jesus, for the redemption of the world. That's the kind of generosity God wants to see flourish in each and every one of us. The generosity by which we give to God, not just our stuff, but truly a lifted up heart. Just as Father Vincent Cappadano did, Ryder, the little boy who gave me a dollar, and especially our Lord Jesus, who offered up his life and saved us. I leave you, brothers, with this little prayer from one of my spiritual heroes, St. Ignatius of Loyola. And he wrote this prayer talking about having a generosity heart, a generous heart of giving to God. And it goes like this. Dear Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve. To give and not to count the cost. To fight and not to heed the wounds. To toil and not to seek for rest. To labor and not to ask for any reward. Except that of knowing that I am doing your holy will. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.